all, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about This is a WLRN extended interview. Thank you for joining us, Catherine McLean. Welcome to WLRN. Thank you for having me. Great. So we are going to be talking a little bit today about the Midwest Women's Herbal Conference. And I understand this is going to be your first time to the conference. How did you learn about it? And what role will you be playing at the conference this year? Well, I learned about it when I was uh, invited to give a keynote and two workshops. And so in a way, this gift kind of just landed in my lap out of nowhere And it came at a really powerful time for me because I was on maternity leave with my second child. And this time around that postpartum period was incredibly challenging physically and mentally. And I had also, I was coming out of a very intense year working within the psychedelic community in New York city where, um, women had been, um, psychologically, emotionally, and sometimes even sexually abused by some of the older men in the community and had finally spoken out to remove them from their positions of power. And so the whole year had been a lot of intensity and kind of calling forth this need for women's voices to be heard, and especially within the psychedelic community. And yet also for me feeling kind of sidelined through my postpartum period and not able to engage the way I wanted to. And so when this invitation came, I was like, oh, the universe is paying attention. Like I needed something to look forward to that was the opposite of everything I had been struggling with. So, um, yeah, it's all very new for me, but I just knew as soon as that invitation came through that I would be going and it was just such a, um, such a lovely opportunity. Have you ever been in a women-only space before a gathering of, of, you know, 20, 30, 100, 200, 300 people who are exclusively women and intentionally so? No. And I say no with a question mark because I'm thinking, well, most of my childhood, I grew up in a home where it was my mom and two daughters. And at the same time, you know, on that large scale, no, even the women's retreat that I helped lead in Jamaica, which was with intentional psilocybin mushrooms, there were still men present and it caused actually a lot of problems. And it was something that I learned the hard way that when you create a space that's for women only, that even a couple men who are there and who understand the structure and the framework and why the women are there, it still isn't quite pure enough (laughs) a space. And uh, yeah, I can share more about that, but I'm looking forward to, to doing this. Yeah. Linda Conroy and the organizing team do a great job of creating a bubble, like a place that has boundaries and is protected so that women can experience what it feels like to be outside of patriarchy Mm -hmm. and men's culture and to find ourselves and to create our own culture. And um, so I I always get excited when women who have never been in a space like that are experiencing it for the first time, because it is qualitatively different than 
um, space that includes men, even men, like you were saying, who are good men and understanding. Um, we live in this patriarchal culture and uh, there is a, a power differential based just on how we were born as either male or female. And, um, you know, there's nothing like getting a group of people together um, who are a part of an oppressed class and able to just commune with one another without the presence of the oppressor wow. class. So it's so powerful. I'm, you know, part of me, I'm realizing it will be an interesting dynamic. The part of me that has become so acclimated to patriarchy being in that space. Like, is that part of me going to resent being there? You know, <laughs> it's, it's something that I, you know, you, I've learned to kind of adapt to these toxic environments for so long in academia and in medical institutions in even the work that I intentionally co-created in New York city with male colleagues that ended up kind of perpetuating the same challenges. And so it'll, I hope that the part of me that feels more comfortable in those acclimated environments can also relax and like take a vacation, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the conference really is like a vacation, but it's one that massages your brain, too, because there's so many interesting talks and workshops, and there's just so much to see and to do. Can you talk a little bit more about your work and your background and what got you interested in psilocybin mushrooms and working with women? Sure. You know, my experiences with consciousness, I think really opened up when I went to college. I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, which is a pretty male-oriented, male-dominated culture. Uh, they only started admitting women, I think, in the mid-70s, and it was really toxic for the first uh, several cohorts of women who, who stepped up. Um, while I was there, I think the issues that have become apparent to me now were not so clear, but my personal relationship with mind, with consciousness, with these heart opening chemicals was very strong. And I think I convinced myself that I needed to engage with them through a kind of academic neuroscience psychology framework. And that that would give legitimacy or credibility to my personal interests. Like, oh, I'm not just into psychedelics, I'm studying them. You know, I'm a neuroscientist, I have a PhD. And so I think that that motivation to maintain credibility in a space that is radically taboo um, propelled me through a lot of really intense learning environments that then kind of came to a screeching halt in 2013. So I got my PhD in psychology. I studied meditation first. I got a postdoc position at Johns Hopkins on one of the only legal clinical sites in the world studying psilocybin, which is the chemical in mushrooms, in magic mushrooms. Uh, I even got onto faculty at Hopkins. And then my sister at only 29 years old suddenly found out that her breast cancer had come back in her lungs and she died very rapidly. And that whole experience was, it was like, I was just kind of pushed off 
the cliff of this kind of secure, safe life I had created for myself. And I realized in that moment, so many things I realized there's no way I can keep living the way I'm living and be honest with myself. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to resolve the grief I'm feeling, but I need to dedicate my life to understanding the loss of my sister and just how powerful the institutions were that had both hired me to do my work for them at Hopkins and had also sacrificed her life in this kind of very, I felt uh, cold and kind of uncaring way as she was suffering in the last weeks of her life. And so it was like all of this stuff kind of came to in this like high contrast clarity because of this personal experience. And I would say the last, you know, now it's been six, seven years since her illness has been a lot of just integrating what I learned and still feeling at a loss that there isn't really, I haven't found the structures I need to heal from the grief, to understand what her life was and what her death was. And I certainly haven't figured out what to do professionally in a world that honestly doesn't seem to really care what happened to me, what happened to her. And it could be that I've been looking in the wrong places. You know, it's like that funny, uh, you know, you look everywhere and it's like the last place you look is where you find the thing you're looking for. And so I guess I just haven't arrived at the last place, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but, um, my personal experience with mushrooms as healing medicine was critical in part of that grief process. And both of my children came through what I say is the mushroom portal, meaning in the middle of a mushroom ceremony. And I don't really do it that frequently at all. It's a pretty rare occasion for me. But in the middle of the ceremony, it was very clear. And even one time the mushroom said, like, this is who you are. You're a mother. And I'm like, no, I'm all these other things. They're like, no, you're a mother. (laughs) And it was this shock. And I was like, oh, I guess this is my life's work now, which I never would have thought at Hopkins that that's where my passion about psychedelics and understanding the mind would lead is just to being a mom. It's like such a normal, ordinary, like almost totally ignored role in society, right? It's like everyone has a mom, but we don't usually think about that as like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so for me, it's been a process of finding that place in the psychedelic community where I can speak from the perspective of being a woman, of being a mom. Um, I can help other women feel safe talking about their experiences, having safe experiences. And unfortunately, it's involved a lot of unpleasant confrontation with men in power. Um, And I can't say that that has increased my chances of what I, you know, would call like a credible professional career. I think it's probably ruined a lot of chances for me by speaking out. Um, and so it's, you know, I, right now I kind of feel like I'm stretched between two very different worlds, the divine mother feminine space and the kind of patriarchal traditional power space. And every time I kind of move one direction or another, I realize that this is my space right now in between both. And it's not that pleasant, but, you know, here I am. Mm -hmm. You are listening 
WLRN. Isn't it horrible that women with a PhD in the male-dominated world, they have to fight harder to be recognized. And then once you are recognized, you're still fighting against male power structures. And so do we really, as women, want to achieve these uh, traditional roles and degrees in male-dominated society and, and have PhDs and maybe become priests or become corporate executive officers and all of these prestigious positions that are out there in the world? Or do we want to create a new culture, a, a, a culture that honors women and mothers and doesn't look at motherhood as, you know, some kind of drudgery or something that's just common and ordinary and not that important, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting question. So I'm, you know, reflecting on my own, you know, if someone offered me my job at Hopkins back and said, you can lead the whole lab and hire women and even replace all the people in charge who control the the funding and the access to resources, would I want that lifestyle for me and my family? And I wouldn't. And would I want to hire women into that lifestyle? I wouldn't. I, I think it's, it's toxic and it's, it's like a machine, you know, the way that the medical institution is, is designed to learn more at the expense of human life. And I don't say that lightly. Um, it's, it's like every human being that's part of that institution is just used until it's dead or until it's used up. Most people don't even retire. They just work their asses off until they die. And then it keeps going. So it's like the institution itself, this kind of scientific materialist medical system uses, it fuels itself on human productivity and ingenuity and doesn't actually, in my experience, nourish humanity. It doesn't nourish being a human being. And so I haven't been to medical school, but I hear it's even worse, you know, than research world. Um, one thing I can say is that when my sister was in the hospital, when the palliative care team finally was allowed in the room in the last 24 hours, she was alive. When the, when the male oncologist left, you know, his, his post, like he had quote failed in his view, she wasn't going to survive. And he, it was no longer his problem. The woman who arrived, this Indian woman was amazing. And I was like, where have you been this whole time? Like, you're the priestess who should have been attending to my sister and our family for the last six weeks. And she was just cut from a totally different cloth. And I thought maybe I could be that I could be a woman like that who arrives at, you know, death's doorstep and is playing this sacred role, even in such a terrible location in a terrible institution. And still, I just wonder for that woman, what her life is like. I mean, she's constantly fighting to have access to patients who are dying and fighting for representation against mostly men who are in positions of authority over their patients. And so um, I'm happy that she's doing the job she's doing, but you know, if I want to help people die, I don't want to go back to med school to do it. I'd love to create a new career that blends the experience I have and the mushroom wisdom into some kind of sacred role where I think 
right now people don't know that they want someone like that in the room when they're really sick or when they're giving birth or when they're dying, but they do. And you know, when that person shows up, it's a huge godsend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think that you're in good company with feminists because feminist women for years have been working on creating alternative institutions that are woman-centered, woman-powered, and have a, an entirely different set of goals and culture than male institutions that often work against themselves. I mean, as you were speaking, I'm thinking the medical establishment, they're supposed to be caring about people's health. <laughs> In the end, they don't really. No. And so, you know, it seems that there are all these patriarchal reversals in in the larger male-dominated world. It's like, it's very Orwellian. War is peace. You know, death and illness is health. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. There was this, uh, I won't even say his name because I don't want to give him any credibility because he has been denounced as really as racist and homophobic and misogynist, like terrible. But he's a, one of the most famous scientists in the world, modern history. And when he came to Hopkins, he said, I wonder how quickly we'd cure cancer if our careers didn't depend on us understanding and studying cancer. And it just, it stuck out to me that it's like, we've forgotten that what we're trying to do is save humanity and like save the planet that we're living in. And instead we're just studying it to death and we're analyzing it to death and interpreting it to death. And, you know, in my sister's case, she was treated until she died with treatments that probably hastened her death. And yet she wasn't allowed access to restorative palliative care measures that are seen as hastening death because they're, you know, really high levels of morphine that reduce pain or reduce respiratory capacity. But in fact, it's like the when you're out of pain is when your body can actually start relaxing and healing itself, even while it's dying. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to harp too much on Hopkins. I think it's just one example of a much bigger system, but potentially the more disappointing thing when you talk about like, how do we create a new culture is that in the work I did in New York, I allied myself with men who I thought I could create that new culture with. And it was this betrayal and shock for me, maybe naive, that they were just much more interested in perpetuating the same system, probably without being aware of it. It's like it's very hard to want to change a system that you're benefiting from so directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened a, a few different times in my work in New York until, you know, my last conversation where they said, you know, actually, it's not going to work for you to come back. You took too long with maternity leave even though I took the amount of time we had all agreed upon, I was like, okay, clearly this messenger here, the universe is trying to communicate something to me about how this is not the path forward, Catherine, like find a different path, find different allies. We can't do the thing you're hoping to do. Like it's just not in us to do it right now. And so I was, you know, pissed, but also recognizing like this message is coming from somewhere much more beyond the person who's, who's giving it to me. What are some things that you're looking forward to at the conference? 
I'm really looking forward to trying out um, this kind of new idea that I've been tr- I've been playing with, and I don't know how many people take it so seriously, which is that it's possible in an intentional space, in a sacred space, I use that word with intention as well, um, to create psychedelic experiences without ingesting any psychedelics. And so I proposed this idea to the organizers as one of my workshops. And I said, I think I need more than two hours. Can I have like a little bit more time? They said, how about like do an intensive? So I have a three hour intensive and they're like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm basically going to try to open the mushroom space for people without mushrooms. And they're like, awesome. (laughs) And that's totally new for me, but I, I don't think I would try that anywhere else. It just feels like this is the kind of space and the kind of attendees who could get into that space fairly easily and not think it's silly or just fantasy or just guided meditation that this mushroom sacred space that I've been working within is available to us and we can get into it, but it's like, we need to be really serious about it and kind of already have that like radical notion that we can do something that seems impossible. And so I'm super excited for that. It's like totally new, but I wouldn't try it anywhere else. Um, and I know you mentioned that they have great childcare, but I'm kind of interested in, in not bringing my baby with me and being able to just be myself for a few days, which is such a luxury. It feels when I have two little kids. And so that's really enlivening for me to feel like I could just be me in that space, not these various roles. Awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our largely lesbian and radical feminist listeners? Well, I might be new to this level of rage, but I guess what I would say is from the psychedelic perspective, these medicines have been operating underground, in the background, in the dark, in these mysterious places for so long. And we shouldn't be surprised that yet again, our culture isn't quite getting it right. And that the spokespeople for this radical new life-saving medicine, sacred engagement are still the same men, the same power structures. So I'm saying it to myself. And I'm also saying it to kind of everyone who out there who's interested in psychedelics who's interested in mushrooms but feels like the story that's being told already in the public eye is so not their story that it's okay because these mushrooms and these medicines have never told their story through that kind of it's like that's what's just happening at the level of people paying attention but all of the real power is in this underneath mysterious dark place that can't be touched by this crazy system that doesn't seem to care about women Right on. Thank you so much, Catherine McLean. That was WLRN's Thistle Pedersen interviewing Catherine McLean, who will be a keynote speaker at the Mycelium Mysteries Women's Retreat this fall in Almond, Wisconsin. For more information, check out MidwestWomensHerbal.com. Thanks for staying tuned in to WLRN. Mm-hmm.